Well, good morning, church family. It is great to see all of you here this morning. My name is Logan Reynolds, and I have the honor of serving our college ministry. And quite frankly, we've also had some young singles join us. And so now I feel like I've, I've got college and young singles. Um, but man, I'm just so thankful to be here with you all this morning. I'm thankful that um, we have this many people. To be honest, as I was driving home from um, driving back home from Thanksgiving, I was thinking on the fact that I'd probably have 70 faithful few this morning. Um, but as it turns out, we've got a, we've got a, a full room, and so I'm thankful that you guys would be here this morning and would value the worship of the Lord. And so I want to begin this morning in prayer, and so if you would, just go ahead and bow your heads with me as we begin our morning together. God, I'm so grateful for you. I'm grateful for this choir. I'm grateful for this people. I'm grateful for this church. As I spent this last week just thinking on all the many blessings in which you have blessed me and my family, that you have brought us to this place, and I, I just am filled with gratitude. God, I'm thankful for this people. I'm, I'm thankful for the Jordans that I, I look over here and just to celebrate the life of Al and Belinda. And Lord, I'm just grateful for them. And I'm grateful, uh, Father, for the saints that you've brought to this church um, that have poured into me and have given me an opportunity to do ministry. And I'm thankful for Andy. I'm thankful for his time and his effort and his faithfulness to this church that uh, just for the uh, image that he has shown me of what it looks to be, uh, looks like to be a pastor. God, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the, the fact that we can open up your word. And Lord, it is not of me this morning, but it is of you. And so, Lord, I just pray that this morning, God, you would speak to us. God, that your presence would fill this room. God, that these words would be anointed. And Father, your word would speak to our hearts. And God, I pray that as we've already had some distractions, God, I pray that you would kind of focus our hearts and our minds on you. That you would open our heart. You would open our mind to hear from you this morning. God, I'm thankful for Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, it's good to see you again. I'm glad that you're here. I hope maybe your Thanksgiving coma, your turkey coma is kind of worn off, and you're here and you're excited to worship the Lord. So this morning, we are going to be in the book of Numbers. Um, I bet you didn't expect to be in the book of Numbers after Thanksgiving, but nonetheless, that's where we're going to be. So we're going to be in Numbers chapter 13. So I'd like to invite you to open your Bible to Numbers chapter 13. We're going to go from verses 1 and we're going to make our way into chapter 14. We're going to be in the book of Numbers. And so where we are right now is we as the people of Israel are standing on the very cusp of God's promises. We're standing right on the edge of the Jordan River and we're looking into the very promises of God. And, and you can imagine with all what they've been through, they've been through slavery. God's brought them out of that and they've been wandering in the wilderness. And, and much of their life has lived in what I would call the uncertain. What's going to happen next? And so now we stand on the cusp of God's promises, the very promise that he gave to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 of an inheritance, an offspring, and a land. And here we are looking out into the land with nothing but uncertainty lying before us. And so what God comes to Moses, Moses is the leader of the people of Israel. He comes to Moses and he says, okay, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to gather a group of men 12 in all, one to represent each one of the tribes of Israel. And I want you to gather them up and, and I want you to send them on a reconnaissance mission. 
And so what I want to do this morning is I want us too to go on a reconnaissance mission, which just simply means I want you to think, I want you to put your, your mind into the place of Israel. And I want you to put your mind in the place of these 12 men who are going to go into a foreign land, the land that God has promised them. And I, I want you to think through what it looks like to be on a recon mission, which simply means we're going into a foreign land and we're going to scope out the land and we're going to see what it is that God is sending us into. And so what we're going to see this morning is that very thing. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 13, it says this. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. That's important, right? From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, each one a chief among them. So Moses obeys. In verse 3, it says, So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran. According to the command of the Lord, all of the men who were the heads of the people of Israel. And so again, what Moses does is he, he obeys the Lord. He gathers up a group of men, 12 men in all, each one representing the tribes of Israel. And they come together and then he sends them into a land. And he sends them into the land. And what he says is, I want you to scope out three things. There's three things that are important. The first one is going to be people. The second that he is going to send them in to see is the land. And then the third is security. And that's what we find here in verse 17. So pick up there with me. In verse 17 it says, So Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan. And he said to them, Go up into the Negev. And he says, Go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak. Whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or are they strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether they are trees in it or not. And he says, but be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. And now the time of the season is the first ripe grapes. And so again, Moses says, I want you to look at three things. I want you to look at the land. What does the land look like? Is it fertile? Is it rich? Is it poor? Can we live there? And ultimately what Moses wants to know is, is this a place where we can not only survive, but is it a land where we can thrive? Is it a land that we can dig deep roots in? And is this a place where we can live for the next a hundred years of our life? Is this the place where we can raise a family? Is this the place where we can create new memories? What does the land look like? The second thing is, he, he says, I want you to look at the people. What are the people like? Are they big? Are they strong? And ultimately, what Moses wants to know is, can we take them? Just how big of a boy are we talking about? Like, what, what do these people look like? Are they strong? Are they mighty? Are they many? Are they few? Are they soldiers? Or are they common folk? And then the third thing is, he wants to know, what are the security measures What's the security measures? What are we looking at here? And ultimately, can we breach them? So do they live in camps? Does this people live in cities? And are their cities fortified by large walls? Can we breach them? Can we breach them? And so the very men that Moses selects from each of the tribes of Israel go into the land. And they're going to spend 40 days on this reconnaissance mission. And we pick up here in verse 25, it says, At the end of the 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. 
And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all of the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all of the congregation and they showed them the fruit of the land. And in verse 27 it says, and they told them, we came to the land which you sent us and it flows with milk and honey and this is its fruit. And so they go into the land and they spend 40 days searching the land. And again, they're looking at the the land, they're looking at the people, they're looking at the security. And they go, guys, listen, it is exactly as the Lord told us it would be. It truly is a land flowing with milk and honey, which simply just means that it's a fertile land. It's not West Texas, it's, it's East Texas. It's beautiful. There's trees, there's lush green grass, there's all of what you would ever want in a land. It's here and it's right there. All we've got to do is get up and go. But for every good story, there's always a caveat. There's always a caveat, right? And in verse 28, we see that there's a catch. Verse 28, it says, however, the people who dwell in it, who dwell in the land are strong and their cities are fortified and they're very large. And he says, besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And the Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. And so they've said, listen, the land is beautiful, it's incredible, it's exactly what we want, it's exactly what we've been hoping for, it's exactly as the Lord described, but there's people who are dwelling in the land. There's people who are dwelling in the land, and not only are there people who are dwelling in the land, but they're massive people who are dwelling in the land. As a matter of fact, it, it says that the descendants of Anak live there. And if, if you're familiar with them at all, you can do some research. It's pretty amazing to find the research of these people. But they were known to have women who were seven feet tall. That was a standard. That's the WNBA. And you can imagine normal men walking into this land and they're like, oh my gosh, we've got, we do not have a shot. But not only are the people big, but so are the cities and so are the walls in which they are now tasked to, to breach. And so ultimately what they're saying is that for us to move forward is mission impossible. It's certain death. There's no way that we can enter into this land. It's, it's impossible. This is an impossible task for us, the people of Israel, to take a step of faith and move into this land because we won't survive. We won't survive. But then in verse 30, verse 30, I love Caleb. Caleb stands up and with kind of an air of optimism and he begins to challenge the people of Israel and he says this, But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and he said, let us go up at once and occupy it for we are well able to overcome it. And so when all looked hopeless, Caleb stands up into the face of Israel and much like David standing before Goliath says, hey, listen, there's nothing that's big, too big for God. There's nothing that God can't do. There's no amount of people that are too big for God. There's no amount of strongholds that are too great for God's power. He says, we got to get up. We got to gear up and we got to get into this land because God has given it to us. And he's banking his faith, not on Israel, not on the people of Israel, but on the promise that is given to the people of Israel back in verse 2. 
God says, the land which I am giving you. Not the land that you're going to possess, but the land that I possess. I already possess it. I'm already there. I'm already defeating your enemies. But in verse 31, there's opposition that arises to Caleb. In verse 31, it says, Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for, for they are stronger than we are. And so they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land and they, that they had spied out, saying that the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who have come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. It's so interesting to me to see how Israel kind of changes their tune, right? So you've got these 12 men. You've got Joshua and Caleb as a part of these 12 men. And so you've got two, two groups of people now spreading out. You've got Joshua and Caleb who are more on the optimistic, faithful, hopeful people. And then you've got over here the other 10 men who have spied out the land who are saying, hey, we can't do this. And it's interesting how when they first came to Israel and they're like, listen, this land is incredible. It's beautiful. It's exactly what we want. It's exactly what we've hoped for. It's exactly what we've dreamed of. And now here in verse 32, there's now saying that the land that they once called beautiful and mighty and exactly what we want is now a land that devours its inhabitants. And what you see in these men is they've allowed the fear of man to overshadow their fear of God. They have allowed their fear of man to overshadow their worship of God. See, man became far too great, far too mighty, and God became far too small and far too powerless. And I think back in my, in my life, and I, and I wonder, man, how, how often do I go through life with a really small view of God? When things seem impossible, when things seem uncertain, how often do I look at the waves? You know, I think about Peter. I love Peter. I, I feel like my life represents Peter, and so he makes me feel better about myself. And I think about him in the boat when he, when Jesus calls him out onto the water, and he, he steps out in faith, and he's walking towards Jesus, and all of a sudden his eyes slip from Jesus, and, and he sees the waves. The waves begin to billow, and all of a sudden the waves get bigger, and they get bigger, and they get bigger. And all of a sudden his gaze is no longer on Jesus, but now it's on the waves. And it's when our eyes shift from Jesus that we begin to sink in fear. It's when these men, when their eyes begin to shift away from God and His promises, that they begin to sink in the ocean of fear and their worship is exchanged for the fear of man. When fear is our God and we begin to face things that seem impossible or irrational or uncertain, our faith is crushed and our hope is exchanged for cynicism. When fears are God, when that is what we're bowing down to, 
faith is crushed. And hope is exchanged for cynicism. And boy, do we live in a cynical culture. Boy, do we live in a cynical world. I mean, you can't turn on the TV and see anything positive. It's all negative. And so no wonder why we're cynical. And, and at the very moment of when we see optimism is the very moment when, the, when Caleb brings a, a hope, when he brings in optimism to the camp of Israel, it's amazing how quickly it, get, it gets crushed. But I just wonder how often are you leading people towards faith and hope or fear and cynicism? I think these men, <clears throat> I think they led with the latter. You know, we will, uh, we will live defeated lives when we look at life through the mountain in front of us. We will live defeated lives if, if we're constantly looking at life through the lens of the mountain that's in front of us, trying to figure out how in the world am I going to summit this peak? How in the the world am I going to get to the top all by myself when in reality as Christians, we ought to be looking at the mountain from the top. We ought to be looking at the mountain from the peak, looking down at the mountain, realizing the, the path that God has already forged for us and understanding that it was not us that got us here, but rather it was God who got us here. It was God who came down and it was God who put us on his back and it was God who walked his way up the mountain And carried us up here. And it's then that we live lives as victors. It is then that we understand that the impossible, that there is no impossible with God. There is no impossible with God. But unfortunately for the people of Israel, these men begin to persuade them not towards hope, not towards encouragement, not to worship God, but rather to fear man. And in verse, or in chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, the text says, then all of the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And so these 10 men in the face of optimism, in the face of hope, begin to persuade the rest of their people to fear man rather than the worship of God. And the result then becomes three things. We're going to see that beginning in verse 2. And all of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt? Or would that we have died in this wilderness? In verse 3, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Oh, would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And so three things happen here. Three things happen here. The first is this, that these leaders persuade the people of Israel to begin questioning their leadership. They begin to question Moses and Aaron. And all in verse 2, all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness. Listen to that. We would rather go back to slavery than follow Moses and Aaron to freedom. 
we would rather die the painful death of starvation and dehydration in the wilderness than experience life following these men. Listen to how ridiculous that is. Oh, that we would not be a people who choose slavery over life. Oh, that we would not be a people who would choose death when God is freely offering you life. All it takes is faith. So oftentimes we live as open theists. An open theist is simply one who does not believe that God knows the future. Now we wouldn't say that. There's never nobody in this room who would say, oh, well, I don't believe that God knows the future. But yet so often what our fear and what our cynicism tells us is that obviously God doesn't know the future. And if God doesn't know the future, then he can't be trusted. And if God can't be trusted, then it must be up to me to figure out life. It must be me up to me to figure out how in the world am I going to navigate this life to fit it the exact way that I think it should be. And ultimately, we put ourselves on the throne and we remove God from the throne of our lives. We become what Craig Rochelle calls Christian atheists. A Christian atheist is someone who believes in God. Or they say they believe in God, but their life demonstrates something far different. Rather, God is a mere ideal. He is a mere thought. He is a mere good idea. But ultimately, He's not a God to love. He's not a God to surrender to. And He's not a God to adore. We walk through life as though it's all up to us. In verse 3, the people lead, I'm sorry, these leaders lead the assembly of Israel to then question God's goodness. So they lead them to question their leaders. The second thing they do is they lead them to begin questioning God's goodness. In verse 3, it says, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Literally, they begin to question God's goodness. God, would you really take me into this land to just kill us? And I think the key word here is the question, why? Oh God, why would you give me this diagnosis? Oh God, why would I lose my job? Why would you allow these things to happen to me? God, why would you bring us through? Why would you rescue us from Egypt and rescue us from slavery? Why would you bring us into Egypt? Why would you feed us and care for us? All to bring us to this one moment only for you to kill us. God, why? That's the question that we ask when things seem uncertain. When life seems uncertain, when life is threatened. We begin to ask the question, why? And just like Eve, we begin to believe the lie that somehow or some way God is withholding something good from us. That somehow or another God is withholding something good from me. And yet again, we become the king and the queen of our life. 
believing that we know what's better for our life than you do. God. I know what's better. I know what's good for my life, God. You don't know me. And yet we do it all the time. And then the third thing is in verse 4, and it says, And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So they, they're led to question their leadership. That moves them into questioning God's goodness, God's character. And lastly, to rejecting their leadership. And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Hey, I'm done with this. Let us choose a leader and let's go back to slavery. You know, every moment or every morning you wake up, we, we have the opportunity to choose freedom or we have the opportunity to choose slavery. That every time we choose sin, we are choosing slavery over freedom. That every time we choose sin, we are choosing death over life. That every time we gossip, Junior, you're enslaved to gossip. You can be enslaved to gossip. Even the respectable sins, as Jerry Bridges calls them. Pride. All of these things, when you choose these things, you are not choosing God, you are choosing yourself. You're choosing to put yourself on the throne of your life rather than rejecting self, and as Jesus calls it, dying to self. Every moment we have the opportunity to choose between life or death. And if you, feel, you flip the page, Caleb is quieted, and now it's time for Joshua to step up. And in verse 7, Joshua stands up and he meets the opposition. And he says this, The land which we passed through to spy it out, he says, it's an exceedingly great land. And in verse 8, he says, But if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land, and he will give it to us, and the land that flows with milk and honey. And in verse 9, it's important, he says, But only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. He says, their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And so what, what, what he, he points them back to is he points them back to the very character of God. This is Joshua who's going to eventually take the reins after Moses. He, he comes in and he steps in. He's young. And he says, listen, guys, here's the reality. The problem is not with the land. The problem is with our belief or rather our unbelief. And he begins to challenge them, and he begins to point them back to God's character. But then in verse 10, it says, Then all of the congregation said to one another, Let us stone them with stones. You can see the pattern of sin, right? The pattern of sin begins with an unbelief in God and His promises. It leads them to then begin to persuade the people of Israel towards fear of man rather than fear of God which then leads them to persuade the people to question their leadership, which then leads the people then to question the very character of God, which then leads them to reject their leadership, leading them to want to kill their leadership. You know, sin only has one road. It always takes you farther than you want to go and always leaves you a lot longer than you wanted to stay. 
you know, I've done enough weddings at this point and I've done enough counseling at this point to recognize and, and understand that nobody on their wedding day says, this is the person that I am going to have an affair on. Nobody says that on their wedding day. Nobody wakes up one morning and goes, you know what, this is going to be the day that I'm going to take a, a drink of alcohol and this is going to be the day that I'm going to become an alcoholic and that I'm going to get into a car and I'm going to ruin my life and somebody else's life. Nobody says that, but that's the pattern of sin and that's the pattern of sin that we see that all begins with unbelief in God's promises. But then, the, but then God shows up. God shows up here in the latter part of verse 10. It says, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all of the people of Israel. And so at the midst, right when they're ready to stone their leadership, daddy shows up. You know, maybe you can relate to me. And I I remember as a kid, anytime I did something wrong at school, mama's getting a phone call. They don't call dad because he's at work. So they call my mom, which is probably the worst thing. And so they call my mom and they say, hey, Logan's done something, whatever. And so I get home and the first thing that my mom always had to say was, just wait till daddy gets home. And there's that sinking gut feeling in your stomach where it just drops and you're like, oh my gosh, the beating that is awaiting me. And as soon as my dad gets home, I'm like, oh my gosh, that is exactly what just happened. The record player has just come to a screeching halt because dad is home. And dad begins to question the people of Israel and he looks at Moses and he says this in verse 11. He says, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? How long will this people hate me is what he's saying. How long will you have a disdain for me? How long will you live in unbelief of me and my promises? And I want you to notice something specific here. Notice that that God doesn't come in to defend Moses, Aaron, Joshua, or Caleb. Never in that text does he defend them. Never in that text does he walk in the midst of the people of the congregation and like Jesus with the woman caught in adultery and say, hey, drop the stones. Never once does he do that. You want to know why? Because he takes their grumbling and their complaining and their unbelief personally. He takes it personally. See, our grumbling and complaining is... It's an assault to God's character. It's an assault to God's faithfulness, to his sovereignty, to his goodness, to his omniscience, his omnipotence. And ultimately, it is an assault to his love. For us to grumble and complain is to say, God, obviously you don't know what's good for me. And this is not it. So I had another dream. I had another vision planned out for my life. And, and, and what's going on in my life right now just doesn't really fit into that category. The uncertainty in my life, the, the pain in my life, the fear that I'm dealing with, the anxiety, the brokenness, all of those things, is, it just doesn't quite fit in the way that I saw my life going. Is an assault to say that God does not know what he's doing. It's an assault on his character. It's, it's assault on his goodness and his grace in our life. 
You know, when our life is consumed with grumbling and complaining, we are dis- we are demonstrating a life in God and a, li- a life of unbelief in God and a life that says that I know what is better. I know what is better. And so maybe you're in this room and you're like, yeah, but, but Logan, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know me. And, and quite frankly, you'd be right. Very rarely do I make it to the 830 service. So there's very few of the people in this room do I know personally. And I don't know what's going on in your life. And you probably don't know what's going on in my life. But the point is, is it doesn't matter whether I do or whether you do. The point is, is that God does. That God is intimately involved in your life. And Psalm 139 promises me, promises me that he knows every hair on your head. And there's nothing that you're going through that God is not intimately involved in. There's nothing that you'll experience. There's nothing that you have experienced. There's nothing that you're going through right now that God is not intimately involved in. And so here's what I know. That God is working all things for your good. And we can live as victors. We can live faithful lives in the uncertainty of God or uncertainty of life, knowing that God is faithful in the midst of trials, that he's faithful in the midst of impossibilities. And I want to leave you with this particular chapter in Romans chapter 8. Paul's writing, he says, Then what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who in the world can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Oh, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, Paul says, no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is important. And he says, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Can I just remind you this morning that a God who is willing to give his life for you is a God who you can entrust your life to. Can I remind you this morning that a God who is literally willing to give his life for you is a, is a God who is able to handle your uncertainties, to handle your difficulties, to handle those impossibilities. A God who has given his life for you is worthy of your trust. He's worthy of your life. He's worthy of your worship. And because God has given us all that we need, all that we can ever need in Jesus, we can entrust our, our lives to him in the most of uncertain days and times and seasons. Let me pray with us. God, I'm thankful for Jesus. I'm thankful that in the most uncertain of days, Father, we can be faithful knowing that Jesus has given us all that we need. All that we could ever need and ever want. God, you have given it to us freely, fully, and forever. 
God, I find myself grateful for that. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who, God, do not live in unbelief, but we live with great trust in you. Not tracing our trust in our circumstances, not trusting in ourselves, but rather trusting in you, the God of impossibilities. The God who can bring us into the land. And Lord, for anybody here this morning who does not know you, who does not know this God of impossibility, Lord, I pray that this would be an opportunity for them to come to know you. God, I pray that as the Holy Spirit is working in them, Lord, I pray that they would have the courage of Caleb and Joshua to stand up in the midst of a congregation and step forward and say, you know what, I need Jesus. Because a God who has given his life for us is a God who can be entrusted. Father, we love you, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. If you do find yourself in that place where, man, you just don't know the God of impossibilities, man, I want to I offer an invitation to you to come to get to know him. And I can tell you this, that it won't be easy, but it'll always be worth it. And so if that's you, I'm going to ask everybody to stand and you to come to the front and just say simply, man, I need Jesus. I need Jesus.